We are now going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. We're still in the easy part. Daniel chapter 1, as we continue our series. Over the last two weeks, we've covered the first two verses. The first week I introduced this book, I gave some opening thoughts, I explained some of the background events that led up to this book because it opens with the house of Judah beginning to go into captivity to the Babylonians. And remember that our God is the governor among the nations. And so it is God who brought the Babylonians against Judah. He did so because they had willingly rebelled against God, His Word, and they chose to reject God. They refused to repent and get their heart right. The beginning of verse 2 says, It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. God's hand is guiding among the nations. Isn't that right? He is in complete control. And the reader, when we read something like the beginning of of verse 2, we're meant to understand that while it may have been chaotic for those in Jerusalem... God was in complete control. He, he was guiding everything accordingly. Jeremiah 29.4 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. God didn't hide the fact, I'm the one who did this. And I did this because of what you sowed. And you are now reaping what you sowed. And one of the main thoughts from last week was how the Lord wants to bring us out of Babylon and into a life with Christ. But in verse 2, we find that Judah is heading back into Babylon. And as Nebuchadnezzar began his takeover, we saw last week in verse 2 how he only took part of the vessels of the house of God at first. And I use that to make application of how our enemy is often patient in his efforts to take us back into Babylon. He, he's fine to just take a part at first, and he's willing to take his time as he tries to work you over and get you back from where God delivered you from. The devil cannot take our salvation, but he wants to bring us into captivity of the world and sin. And at first, he may only take a part of what belongs to God And he doesn't care how long it takes so long as he gets you on the path to Babylon. It took them 18 and a half years from the time Nebuchadnezzar first showed up until they would ultimately be destroyed and all of them would be taken captive at that point. And the enemy will be patient with us too. If the enemy has already taken part of something in your life that belongs to God, you need to get things back to where they ought to be. Get your heart right with the Lord. Don't go back into Babylon. And we closed last week with John 10.10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So as we begin tonight, let's read verses 1 through 7 once again. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, 
to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Remember when I introduced this book two weeks ago, I highlighted how the kingdom of Israel had been split into two houses after the reign of Solomon because he did wickedly when he married strange women and began to serve their gods. There was the house of Israel to the north with ten tribes, the house of Judah to the south with two tribes, and that was the beginning of their downfall because the Lord makes it clear a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And the house of Israel fell to the Assyrians. They, kept, they took them captive and they, they sowed them among the nations. And now the house of Judah has the Babylonians uh, right at their doorstep and, and their captivity is going to last 70 years. And I remind you of this again because this was the land of promise. This was the land which flowed with milk and honey. This land, it was to be set apart for Israel. And now it's become the enemy's territory. How heartbreaking. The nation that God said would show other nations that there is a God in heaven. That nation now has has been scattered to the north into obscurity. And to the south, it's now occupied by the enemy in the Babylonians. And in time, they're going to be destroyed and they're fully going to be taken captive. And though there were prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah who foretold that this day was coming by giving the truth of God's Word, there were also many prosperity prophets in those days. Just like we have today. There were many. You go to Micah. They, listen, they, they, they gave the word for hire, for reward, for money, for profit. They, they would tell you what you wanted to hear. And so there were these prosperity prophets, and they were preaching a different message from God's prophets. And for many of those people, when Nebuchadnezzar showed up, this is not how it was supposed to be. Are you with me? They, they had bought the message of the prosperity preachers, and, and this was not to be happening. Jeremiah 23, 17 says, They, and it's speaking of the false prophets, they say still unto them that despise me, the Lord hath said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. And in other places in Jeremiah, you'll read how the false prophets spoke falsely, how they would declare peace when there would be no peace. They would say things like, no evil shall come to you. The entirety of Jeremiah chapter 28 
is, is the account of a false prophet and Jeremiah interacting. And the false prophet says to the people of, Israel, or the people of Judah that in two years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar is going to be broken. And he had a yoke of wood on Jeremiah and he took it off and he smashed it to, to picture how the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar would be broken. The problem was they hadn't even been destroyed yet. And he was saying in two years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be gone. Well, Jeremiah turns to the people and says, no, it's going to be a yoke of iron. And so there was this back and forth between the the true preachers and the false preachers. And because of a false message, the majority were convinced that what's taking place shouldn't be happening. They had the idea that God was going to bless them no matter what. They believed they would always experience peace and prosperity, and they believed God would preserve them. And even though they had seen the house of Israel's destruction, they were of the mindset that they were going to coast until the Messiah arrived, and then they would have their earthly kingdom and all their prosperity forever. But now there's a foreign enemy that's besieged them, and all the prosperity visions that they had believed all came crashing down as the Chaldeans come in and they began to pluck out uh, people from Judah to take them captive back into their homeland, which we see here in verses 3 and 4. And so I just tell you, be careful with any preconceived ideas that you may have of how God is supposed to work. Be careful that you don't get caught up into the mindset that everything's going to be peace and safety at all times. What did Paul write? When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come. That's how our Lord will come as a thief in the night. And so don't get this idea that everything's going to be just fine because when God doesn't operate the way you want Him to, you're going to be tempted to doubt Him. And if not, drop out altogether. Now, from within the majority who were taken by surprise that the Babylonians had arrived, we know from these four Hebrews that are mentioned in verse 6 that there were those who were a minority that were walking close with God. And now, they're going to have to learn to walk with God in a strange land. And as we read these introductory verses, we are reminded of how this world is not our home. And like no other time in our nation's history, as secularism and humanism takes root, we're no longer witnessing a casual turn away from God, but we are witnessing an obstinate rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many examples I could cite. I'll just give you one I read Monday. Did you see the pro-life pregnancy center in Bowling Green, Ohio that was graffitied with the words, Abort God. To be sure, America is no longer the shining city upon a hill that I remember hearing President Reagan talk about when I was a kid. Once great churches in America are becoming more and more like the cathedrals you find in Europe that largely sit empty. And they are nothing more than a shrine of a bygone era. And it's becoming more clear to us than ever before that this world is not our home. What is happening in America is a reminder that we are not to be tethered to this world. Don't anchor yourself to this world. Portions of the Bible which were once applicable really only within the context that we found them, they're now becoming reality to us. The later chapters of Hebrews are becoming more real as we continue to depart away from God on a national level. Hebrews 11, 9-10, By faith He sojourned in the land of promise, 
as in a strange country. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11, verses 13, 14, and 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, but now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Hebrews 12, 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Hebrews 13, verses 13 and 14, Let us go forth therefore unto Him without the camp, bearing His reproach. For we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. God is reminding His people tonight who has been so prosperous in this nation that we're so blessed to be in. Amen. He's reminding us tonight that in this country, don't get too comfortable in this world of sin. And I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for our nation. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for a return to godliness. But I'm simply highlighting these verses now are more real to us than ever before. As God's children, we're beginning to understand more of what it means to bear His reproach as we find ourselves in a strange country. America, after all, is now just another strange country. We're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We have no continuing city. We seek a heavenly city. We know God has provided some better thing for us. And now when we read certain passages, I think we might can view them differently now than maybe in yesteryear. When we read 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, it says, To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We can now see this on the horizon in our own land where we are now strangers scattered throughout this country. And our Lord taught His followers these truths. This should not take us by surprise. It was not just for the first century believers, but when Jesus said what He did in John 15, He said it to us as well. If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love His own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted Me, they will persecute you. And as I've mentioned in the first two messages already, and also in the introduction of this message, we can take comfort as we are living through this that our God is sovereign and that He's in complete control. Even when the circumstances in a nation socially, politically, and all the rest seem to be against us and in fact are against us, we can take comfort knowing that our God is in control and we can wholly follow Him and trust Him come what may. And this is what we're going to see from these four Hebrew young men. God allows them to be taken into captivity, but we'll see that they're trusting the sovereignty of God. And they will, they will remain true to their God in a foreign land as they suffer the consequences of their nation's departure. Now I mentioned last week, as Nebuchadnezzar began his occupation of Jerusalem, he had no plans to originally destroy them, but rather... He was content to keep them under tribute that he might profit off of them by taking their money. Because Jerusalem isn't being destroyed yet, not all the children of Israel are being led away captive as of now. 
we see in verses 3 and 4 that some were being taken captive. King Nebuchadnezzar, he instructs Ashpenaz and he, he tells him, uh, who was the master of the eunuchs, select certain of the children of Israel. Select those who we believe will be able to learn our language and learn our ways. These were to be those, it says, who had no blemish but were well favored. In other words, they had to look a certain way. Those taken captive at, at this time were not to have any deformities. And they were to look good according to the eye of the Chaldeans. In addition to their outward appearance, those selected would, would need intellect. They would need to be intelligent. They needed to be skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding in science. And they needed to be able to receive Chaldean instruction. And so they had to have the right appearance. They had to have the right mind. And finally, we see they needed to possess the ability to stand in the king's palace. This not only means they needed to, the strength to stand for long periods of time physically, but it also means they needed to be competent enough to stand before leaders without buckling under the pressure of doing so. And so Nebuchadnezzar, listen, he's making it plain here right off the bat, even though he's not destroying them, that he's already triumphant over Judah. He's already taken the best of the vessels of the house of God, and now he's taken the best from, from among uh, those in Judah. And I want you to notice in verse 4 that these who were initially taken captive, they were only children. In verse 3 it mentions the children of Israel, but that Hebrew word for children just means a people group regardless of age. They belonged to Israel, the children of Israel. But the, the Hebrew word for children in verse 4, it refers to someone still in their youth. These are young people that are being taken away. We know from this book that Daniel lived through the entire 70-year captivity. So these who were taken at this point, they had to be young to be able to live that long. And they were likely between the ages of 13 and 20. There's some debate there, but I agree with that range personally. They're, they're probably teenagers. And it logically makes sense that because Ashpenaz was the master of the eunuchs, then these who were selected by the Babylonians were made eunuchs as well. Isaiah foretold to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, 18, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so there's Bible to hint at that. But since the Bible never really says definitively one way or the other. I'm not going to force the position and start a new church over it. But I bring it up to highlight how heartbreaking all of this is that's taking place here. These are the best from among Judah's youths. And they're being forcefully taken away from their parents and from their homeland. They may have lost all communication with their family. They may have never seen them again. And we're still... If they were made eunuchs, they would never have their own family. Now, I currently have three teenage boys in the home, and I couldn't imagine how heartbreaking it would be to know the enemy coming in and yanking them out from Adrian and I and sending them into a foreign land. They would never enjoy a normal marriage relationship again. Listen, sin on the national level is a big deal. And I say this because I know there's those who feel like we have no business in the realm of politics and all the rest, but sin on a national level is huge in the Bible. Yes. 
And, and we see it here. You got to understand, the youth of Judah were not the ones who plunged the kingdom into the depths of sin that they're at. It was their parents, it was their grandparents. This was generations taking place. And yet it is the young people who are going to become partakers of the nation's consequences. We must pray for our country. Amen. Listen, we ought to be praying for revival on a national level. I hope you're praying for that. We need to pray God will raise up some godly national leaders, both in the pulpit and in politics. Those who would lead us to repentance to God. Listen, the moral majority is gone. If you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. It's gone. But understand this. What has been lost morally in this country was first sacrificed theologically in the church. As soon as the the culture said, oh, we don't like that idea, then many pulpits began to pull back from the authoritative Word of God. And once we started to lose our ground theologically, we get the mess we're in today socially. And I'm thankful for the political and social conservatism that we still find in this country in great numbers. But sadly, a lot of that conservatism is without God. And what we need is a genuine return to God because eventually we'll reap what we've sown. Our children will end up suffering the consequences of our sin. Now, I hate to see children suffer, especially when it's because of sinful parents. I've highlighted this because I don't want you to just read verses 3 and 4 and move on quickly. This is a big deal, what's taking place. It's a very serious issue that we're reading about. It's an awful consequence of Judah's willingness to forsake God. And now tonight, with the time I have remaining, I feel like i got to take verses 4 through 7 and state to you the obvious. And that is the enemy seeks to take control of a people by coercing the youth of a country. Notice how the Babylonians are operating here. They take the youth and they put them into their schools. They feed them their diet and they change their names. Does that sound familiar in any way? Nebuchadnezzar intends to change them into the image of the Chaldeans at a very early age. And the hope is that these Hebrews will forget the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of their heritage, if they can relocate them, if they can re-educate them, if they can rename them, if they can change their worldview, then they have them. Everybody with me? And for many young people, sadly, a simple change in location is all it takes. Because all they ever had was a shell of Christianity. And, and so some just change location. That's enough for them to get away from God. They leave the familiarity of their family, of their church peers. They have no one now telling them, get up, let's go to church. Nobody's forcing them to gather together. And sometimes that new location happens to be a university where they are indoctrinated into the language and customs of our world. And they pay huge sums of money to do so. And, and what the 
many of these liberal, well, obviously the liberal universities, what many of the universities are teaching in our country is completely contrary to what our children are learning at home and in the church. We used to view this indoctrination as only happening under communist regimes, but it's happening here in America. And it's now beginning at much early, much earlier ages than at the university level. I tell you to keep an eye on this whole idea of free public uh, preschool. That was thrown around a few years ago. Let's get your children even younger. In many public school districts, children are being indoctrinated as early as kindergarten. What's happening? A child's location for the day is being changed. They're being sent off to a school on a bus. They're being brought into a place where they are taught the language and way of the world. And now we're even witnessing them changing their names through the Chaldean indoctrination. Some schools in our nation are allowing and in fact even promoting children to choose their pronouns. However they feel they identify in their gender. And if they want to change their name to a different gender name, then that's fine too. Is everybody okay? I'm not being ugly. We must understand that it matters where our children spend their time. It matters where, where they are educated. It matters what worldview they are taught. Amen. Vladimir Lenin, who led Russia into communism, he said this, Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Give us the child for eight years, and it will be a Bolshevik forever, which was the party that led to the Russian Communist Party. He also said, give me just one generation of youth and I'll transform the whole world. And in many ways he did because from that beginning of communism, many countries after that adopted. He said, destroy the family, you destroy the country. Here are a few of Adolf Hitler's quotes. If the older generation cannot get accustomed to us, we shall take their children away from them and rear them as needful to the fatherland. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. He said, when an, op- when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. He said this, The youth of today is ever the people of tomorrow, For this reason, we have set before ourselves the task of inoculating our youth with the spirit of this community of the people at a very early age, at an age when human beings are still unperverted and therefore unspoiled. The Reich stands, and it is building itself up for the future upon its youth. And this new Reich will give its youth to no one, but will itself take youth and give to youth its own education and its own upbringing. End quote. Man, we... We, we hear that and we think, yeah, that's, that's communism. No, that's in America now. And, and that's a fact. The devil has done a masterful job in our country of devising a system of blatant, uh, outside of blatant communism here in America where you send out your child nine hours a day to be indoctrinated by the world. And that world is anti-God. You know, many parents only get a couple hours a day to influence their children. Amen. I know when we used to live out in, almost out in New Underwood, the bus is coming by at like 6 in the morning to get them to school in time. They're not coming home till 4. What is that? 
Is that 10 hours? It's 10 hours. You get them, you make supper, you probably sit in the TV in front of the TV to watch supper. That's our routine, amen? Don't knock it. Okay, loosen up. Um, and then you got an hour or two and they go to bed. And I'm not, I am not saying do not put words in my mouth. I'm not saying you're the devil if your child goes to a public school because I realize South Dakota is not California yet. I understand all of that. But you need to know what your child is being taught and you need to exclude them if necessary. Believe it or not, we now have some school districts in our nation who are openly saying parents have no right to know what their child is being taught. That they have no right, that a parent has no right to know if their child is struggling with gender confusion. This is happening. And, and parents are being told, you just need to trust the system. You trust us. We're the educators. Sounds just like communism to me. There's a lot of examples. Here's just one. This was from two weeks ago. Justthenews.com posted an article with the headline, Maryland School District says parents can't opt their kids out of learning gender identity ideology. And here's what the article reads in part. A Maryland school district informed parents via email that they are not allowed to opt their children out of engaging with any instructional materials related to gender identity ideology. The email said that students could not opt out of the lessons like they used to be able to in order to create a more inclusive environment. MCPS, or Montgomery County Public Schools, expects all classrooms to be inclusive and safe spaces for students, including those who identify as LGBTQ+, or have family members in the LGBTQ plus community, the district stated. Hey, listen, if you want to treat people with respect, lead them to God. Amen. I'm not treating anybody ugly. That's of a different persuasion. Amen. But for some reason, if you don't agree with the teaching, you're somehow against them. You see what I'm saying? But, but listen, it goes on to say, a broad representation of personal characteristics within um, curricular or instructional materials promote this desired outcome. There is an agenda for our children. They want a desired outcome. Amen. And, and we better wake up to what's happening because don't think you're going to be immune to it here in South Dakota forever. And as Christians, we have to combat this evil influence. And listen, I don't know what that looks like for your family. I'm not the head of your home. But we are taught how to, com to combat the world's indoctrination of our children in Deuteronomy 6. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Amen. That's all the time. Amen. This passage makes it clear that we're not to trust the instruction of our children to the world. Amen. And understand what I mean right here. We're not to trust it solely to the church. Amen. Because here's what some parents do. We'll just take them to church a few hours a week and they're going to turn out just fine. Listen, if you don't have it in the home, if the home isn't supplementing, or if the church isn't supplementing what should be taking place in the home, you're already behind. It's hard enough, trust me. <laughs> I wouldn't betray my kids' confidence, but I could tell you some things. It's hard enough. 
Now, I understand it's ultimately a child's choice. We can raise them the right way. We can put them in the finest schools. We can do all the right things. But they'll still make their own decision. If you believe in a free will. And if you hold somebody to some standard that says you must have messed up, then what you're saying is their salvation and walk with God is your works. So be careful. But I want to ask you, are you doing your part? Do you have a clear conscience with God? You'll stand and give an account. Children are in heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. And, and we just get them on loan. Essentially, amen? They move up and move on and do you have a clear conscience that you've done all that you know to do to raise your child for God? And I hope you do, because when they make those stupid mistakes, you can look at them and say, don't you blame me. You all, most of you would know the name of an evangelist who comes through here, and he had six children, and the last one turned out to depart from God, and he tried to blame his daddy for it. And his daddy said, I don't know what you're talking about. I got five other kids that are living for God. You're just being a knucklehead. Amen. Don't blame me. Yeah. I, I want to leave you with this thought to consider. If your child was completely removed from you tomorrow and forced into a Babylonian environment to be taught their language and their ways, how well do you think they would fare? Listen, I've tried to do all I can do, and I still have my doubts. Not you, Sydney. You're awesome. Man, she's cramping my style being back. Amen? Do you think your child would retain the godliness you tried to pour into them? Or would they adopt the ways of the world? What we see taking place here in our text is exactly what's taking place in America. But there's good news. There's at least four Hebrew boys here that were sold out for God. Why? Because it goes back to the choice. It goes back to their heart. And we want to win their heart to God. I understand all that. But they've got to make the decision. And, and I was just struck by this as I was going through. There's a lot more I want to say. I'm going to have to save it for another time. But this is what's taking place. Give me your youth, and I'll take over your country without any shots fired, without any lives lost physically, and the enemy will take over. Parents, be engaged with your children. Amen. Grandparents, you have an influence. We'll have to look at this more next time, but we're going to see how these four Hebrews respond. I'm not saying it's a formula for how to live in a foreign land, but we're going to see that it is possible to live godly no matter what. Let's pray.